welcome to Immigration Review, your weekly source for immigration case law updates and insights. I'm your host, Kevin A. Gregg, back again to review the week's presidential immigration cases, rummaging through the decisions so you don't have to. This podcast is sponsored by Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, also known as KKTP, a law firm where I'm also a partner. Whether you are facing an immigration obstacle, a serious injury, or a legal issue in your business, KKTP will aggressively protect your best interests. This podcast is also sponsored by DocketWise, an all-in-one immigration forms and case management solution trusted by thousands of immigration lawyers across the U.S. I really like DocketWise. It makes immigration applications easy by allowing the clients to provide information through simple online questionnaires that are shareable by text or email and available in multiple languages. Not only that, DocketWise provides a comprehensive group of case management features, including invoicing and calendaring, secure messaging, task management, and a lot more. You can learn all about DocketWise and receive a 10% discount on your subscription by heading to docketwise.com immigration review so they know we sent you. And as always, this show does not constitute legal advice and has no bias other than to keep you up to date and to enable you, my dear colleagues, to excel in court. So, without further ado, let's start the review. It's been a wild week of ups and downs in immigration law, with two Supreme Court decisions and the AILA National Conference, which featured lots of excellent presentations, some positive and some kind of depressing including by the highest officials in DHS and EYR. I hope all the immigration attorneys listening could attend. Also, here's a heads up on Niz Chavez's motions to reopen from ICE itself. Quote, For 180 days from the date of the Supreme Court's decision, i.e. until November 16, 2021, ICE attorneys handling removal cases before EYR will presumptively exercise their prosecutorial discretion to join or, not oppose, a motion to reopen filed by such non-citizens who demonstrate that they are prima facie eligible for cancellation of removal, end quote. So get your motions and supporting evidence filed, practitioners. Now, off to the Supreme Court. Starting off as we must with Sanchez v. Mayorkas, published by the Supreme Court on June 7, 2021. I believe this is the last immigration case this term, and it's the third in almost as many weeks issued unanimously against non-citizens. Justice Kagan authored the opinion. We've discussed this issue a bit on the podcast. Can individuals who entered the United States unlawfully and who later obtained Temporary Protected Status, or TPS, adjust to Lawful Permanent resident Status under INA Section 245A based on an approved visa petition, such as, say, if they marry a U.S. citizen or have a sponsoring employer? Some circuits have said yes, others have said no, and the Supreme Court has now unanimously said no, shutting the door on permanent legal status for thousands of individuals. Here's why. 
Under INA Section 245A, a non-citizen and non-LPR with an approved visa petition can adjust to LPR status so long as the non-citizen has been, quote, inspected and admitted or paroled into the United States, end quote. At the same time, the TPS statute states, among other things, that, quote, for purposes of adjustment of status under Section 245, a person given TPS shall be considered as being in and maintaining lawful status as a non-immigrant, end quote. So boil down, the argument that the Supreme Court addressed goes as follows. Non-immigrants, like visitors and students, are always inspected and admitted. So, if, as the statute states, TPS recipients are considered as being and maintaining non-immigrant status, they must be deemed to have been inspected and admitted under immigration law, and as required of INA Section 245A. And after all, to get TPS, non-citizens must go through an extensive vetting process that is certainly an inspection. Mr. Sanchez entered the U.S. unlawfully, but received TPS many years later, when El Salvador was designated with temporary protected status following a devastating earthquake in 2001. As an aside, only certain Salvadoran citizens could obtain TPS, and you can't get TPS if you're from El Salvador and enter the U.S. today. But many Salvadorans still have TPS after two decades in the United States. The Trump administration tried to take TPS away from El Salvador and many other countries based on determinations that those countries had become safe during the Trump administration. But those decisions were fought in court, and it appears that the Biden administration is revoking the TPS terminations. They've already done so and redesignated Haiti, for example. But TPS is and has always been a temporary protection. Mr. Sanchez is actually one of the lucky TPS recipients who is the beneficiary of an approved visa petition, and he sought to adjust status in 2014 based on that approved petition. USCIS denied, holding that he hadn't been inspected and admitted or paroled because he entered without authorization. Mr. Sanchez sued, the district court vacated USCIS's decision, but the Third Circuit overturned the district court. The Third Circuit's published decision, in this case, aligned with the Fifth and the Eleventh Circuits, but contradicted the Eighth Circuit, as well as long-standing decisions from the Sixth and the Ninth Circuits. Here, the Supreme Court agreed with the Third Circuit. Simply put, according to the Supreme Court, the TPS, quote, provision does not aid the TPS recipient in meeting Section 245A's independent legal entry requirement. Lawful status and admission are distinct concepts in immigration law. Establishing one does not necessarily establish the other. End quote. As to the being deemed and maintaining non-immigrant status argument that I mentioned a bit ago, the court rejected it, noting that not all non-immigrants lawfully in the U.S., such as crewmen and victims of serious crimes seeking U visas, for example, are deemed inspected and admitted. So, according to the Supreme Court, just referring to TPS recipients as being deemed and maintaining non-immigrant status doesn't suffice to indicate that they are deemed inspected and admitted. Short, professedly text-based decision with huge impacts, especially in the 6th, 8th, and 9th circuits where TPS had previously provided a path to a green card for many years. 
Three more quick things before the Immigration Review Podcast wraps up the Supreme Court's 2021 term. Lots of practitioners seem confused about Justice Kagan's citations to INA Section 245K. But the reason, it appears, based on my colleague Heather Roberts' Google searching, is that Mr. Sanchez was seeking to adjust status based on an approved employment-based petition. But the Supreme Court didn't mention that. More importantly, in a footnote, the Supreme Court expressly leaves for another day whether TPS or DACA recipients who entered without authorization and then departed the United States with advanced parole, and then returned, have been paroled and inspected into the United States such that they can adjust status under INA Section 245A based on an approved visa petition. That's a much closer issue, notwithstanding Trump-era USCIS and BIA decisions to the contrary. So stay tuned and keep making the argument, practitioners. Finally, in a parenthetical, Justice Kagan appears to imply that the court's decision is supported by congressional intent as evidenced in part by the Dream and Promise Act currently pending in Congress, which makes expressly clear that if passed, quote, a TPS recipient shall be considered as having been inspected and admitted into the United States, and as being in and maintaining lawful status as a non-immigrant, end quote. Maybe indicative of Congress's intent in the 1990s and maybe not, but after this decision, the stakes couldn't be higher to pass the current proposed legislation. See the Immigrants List link in the show notes if you'd like to contribute to the fight. And that is Sanchez v. Mayorkas. Sticking with the Supreme Court, something I've never said before on the podcast, we have Bourdon v. United States, published on June 10th, 2021. So that was a big loss for non-citizens on the TPS case. But I'd argue that this case, which not many immigration practitioners are talking about, is quite important too. Justice Kagan issued the majority opinion, which has only four votes this time, with Justice Thomas providing the necessary fifth vote in concurrence. Justice Kavanaugh authored the dissent. And this is a categorical approach case that arises in the Armed Career Criminal Act, or ACCA, sentence enhancement context. But as I've mentioned before, this particular ACCA provision, the Violent Felony Elements Clause under 18 U.S.C. Section 924-E2BI, is nearly identical to the last remaining aggravated felony crime of violence definition at 18 U.S.C. Section 16-A. So what's good for the goose is good for the gander. If both goose and gander were criminal statutes, and The Pond was a weekly podcast. Absolutely brilliant and totally not weird metaphors aside, what the Supreme Court is saying here for the ACCA applies equally to the aggravated felony crime of violence definition at 18 U.S.C. Section 16A, as incorporated at immigration law under INA Section 101A43F. And this opinion is quite good for non-citizens. The ACCA enhances a criminal sentence for individuals convicted of certain federal crimes, where the defendant has three or more prior crimes for a, quote, violent felony, end quote, as that term is defined at 18 U.S.C. section 924 E2BI. 
To be an ACCA violent felony, the prior conviction must have, quote, as an element, the use, attempted use, or threatened use of physical force against the person of another, end quote. And that's almost the exact same definition of a crime of violence aggravated felony under immigration law, which is why this case is so important. What's required of an ACCA violent felony? The Supreme Court touched on it in 2019 in Justice Kavanaugh's Stockling decision, and I'm not going to get into all of that here, because this decision involves a different and perhaps more important requirement of mens rea. What mental state must a prior statute of conviction require to satisfy the violent felony provision under the ACCA? Or, as the court posed it, will a prior criminal conviction, quote, count as a violent felony if it requires only a mens rea of recklessness, a less culpable mental state than purpose or knowledge? We hold that a reckless offense cannot so qualify, end quote. Let me say that again. Recklessness doesn't satisfy the mental state required of violent felonies. And because the same analysis is required of the aggravated felony crime of violence definition used by 18 U.S.C. section 16A and INA section 101A43F, this decision holds that a state statute that allows for conviction with a reckless or criminally negligent mens rea cannot qualify as an aggravated felony crime of violence under immigration law. Boom. If there was any doubt that this ACCA case applies equally to the crime of violence immigration aggravated felony provision, the court relies heavily upon its over-a-decade-old Leo Calvi Ashcroft decision to reach its conclusion here. And the Leocal decision directly analyzed Section 16A. And it described that statute as, quote, relevantly identical to the ACCA's elements clause, end quote. In Leocal, the Supreme Court held that a statute requiring a negligent mens rea won't satisfy the aggravated felony crime of violence definition. And here, the court then, quote, reached the question we reserved in Leocal, end quote, whether the phrase, quote, use of force, end quote, includes reckless conduct. And again, it doesn't. A bit about the case. Mr. Bodone's predicate crime that the U.S. government tried to use to enhance his federal conviction was reckless aggravated assault in violation of Tennessee law. In Tennessee, and generally, a person acts recklessly when he, quote, consciously disregards a substantial and unjustifiable risk attached to his conduct in gross deviation from accepted standards, end quote. That doesn't satisfy the ACCA Violent Felony or Immigration Crime of Violence Elements Clause, mainly because both statutes contain the word use, or attempted use. And boiled way, way down, one cannot use or attempt to use force, quote, against another, end quote, recklessly or negligently. To use or attempt to use force against another implies that the actor is intending to do so, or at least knowingly does. So a statute that allows for a conviction by mere reckless conduct does not contain, as an element, the use or attempted use of force that's required to turn a state crime into a violent felony or crime of violence. Of course, there's a bunch more analysis here, but that's the gist of it. When it comes to someone involved in reckless action, quote, because his conduct is not opposed to or directed at another, he does not come within the elements clause, end quote. 
Justice Thomas, in concurrence, doesn't really like any of it. But referring to Justice Scalia's final opinion in Johnson, he'd rather, quote, aggravate a past error than commit a new one, end quote. Works for me. So huge win, because a lot of otherwise violent state crimes criminalize reckless conduct. And in my experience, mens rea is often not divisible, meaning that the least culpable conduct for such crimes will often be recklessness and therefore preclude an aggravated felony crime of violence finding. Going to be a fun few years in crimmigration. Here's some more. First, don't be concerned that technically we have a four-justice majority plus Justice Thomas in concurrence. In a footnote, Justice Kagan makes clear that, quote, That makes five to answer the question presented. Question. Does the elements clause exclude reckless conduct? Answer. Yes, it does. End quote. By the way, excellent case if you ever need to define a specific type of mens rea, as the Supreme Court spends two entire pages mapping out the definitions of purpose or intent, knowledge, recklessness, and negligence. Bit of a bummer, though. In a footnote, the court says that this decision does not reach state statutes with a mental state of, quote, extreme recklessness, end quote, or, quote, depraved heart, end quote which apparently, but not necessarily, may be different than regular recklessness. Unclear and to be decided. And I gotta just say one more thing. Criticize the Supreme Court all you want for sometimes being ends-oriented, but oftentimes they're just all about the statute and precedent, for better or for worse. Side by side and stripped of legalese, the Supreme Court's decision in the TPS case will prevent tens of thousands of non-citizens with no criminal records from getting green cards and remaining with their U.S. citizen families. While this decision here will allow, over time, thousands of non-citizens to keep their green cards, notwithstanding the fact that they have a conviction that, at least in many instances, involves some sort of violence such as Supreme Court jurisprudence. And that is Bourdon v. United States. Next is matter of DGC, published by the BIA. This case is about the changed circumstances required to overcome the one-year deadline to file an asylum application. Mr. DGC is from China and entered the United States on a tourist visa in 2012. He overstayed and filed for asylum nearly two years later, making the application presumably time-barred. In immigration court, he testified that he was detained and beaten by police in China for proselytizing his Christian beliefs. He subsequently hid from police at a friend's house, and then he fled to the United States. Once in the U.S., he emailed Christian materials to people in China, and days before he filed that asylum application, quote, his Christian brothers and sisters in China told him that the police discovered one of his emails and were still trying to catch him. His wife also told him that the police ordered her to report his return to them, end quote. As relevant here, Mr. DGC argued that all of that made his asylum application timely, because it happened right before he filed his application. So, 
INA Section 208A2D provides that an untimely asylum application may be considered, quote, if the non-citizen demonstrates to the satisfaction of the Attorney General the existence of changed circumstances which materially affect the applicant's eligibility for asylum, end quote. And for what it's worth, the BIA cites to and acknowledges the very favorable Ordonez Asman v. Barr, published by the Second Circuit and discussed on episode 12 of the podcast. Check it out. But in this case here, the BIA determined that to meet the changed circumstances exception and therefore make an untimely asylum application timely, quote, the applicant's circumstances must be different in a significant way which means they are qualitatively different, end quote, and they must be material. Quote, to be material, changed circumstances must significantly affect the applicant's eligibility for asylum as a consequence of newly established facts or a new legal basis for relief, end quote. That's not the case here, because Mr. DGC's new evidence simply showed that police were still looking for him. But his whole asylum claim was premised on the fact that the police were looking for him when he fled China. Put another way, police were apparently looking for him when he came to the U.S., but he nevertheless claimed that he should be excused from the one-year deadline because police were still looking for him, perhaps more intently two years later. According to the BIA, his actions in the U.S. were merely a, quote, continuation, end quote, of his original claim, and so his failure to meet the one-year deadline is not excused. Because Mr. DGC didn't meaningfully challenge the denial of Convention Against Torture Protection, that leaves only withholding of removal under the INA, which the BIA actually remanded, holding that the immigration judge did not perform sufficient factual findings and inferring that, indeed, Mr. GDC's claims may satisfy the past persecution standard in the Second Circuit where these proceedings originate. So because the BIA remanded proceedings, the BIA's new legal standard in this case might not ever make its way up to the Second Circuit on direct appeal. But Mr. DGC lives to fight another day. Two more thoughts. I don't know, call me crazy, but it appears that the BIA is simply saying that Mr. DGC's new evidence wasn't extreme enough, and is in the process trying to create a new rule. You tell me, quote, The alleged change must be significant, such that it materially affects the applicant's asylum eligibility, end quote. To me, that doesn't foreclose a similar fact pattern overcoming the one-year bar, so long as, say, instead of simply presenting emails from contacts showing that police were still looking for him, Chinese authorities had, say, murdered his fellow churchgoers in search of Mr. GDC? Asylum is always very fact-specific, and this decision, to me, seems no different. In that vein, here are some things that would have excused the one-year bar. Quote, the respondent does not allege that he became involved in new activities related to Christianity in the United States, nor does his activity in this country raise a claim for asylum under a separate protected ground or on the basis of a newly articulated claim of future persecution, end quote. And that is matter of DGC. Next, we have Velaz v. Garland, published by the Second Circuit on June 7, 2021. 
This case is about New York petty larceny and CIMTs. Mr. Velaz is a lawful permanent resident who was thrice convicted of petty larceny under New York Penal Law Section 155.25. Because two CIMTs make an LPR removable, if the statute is a CIMT, Mr. Velaz is, you guessed it, removable. Now, in the 2016 decision matter of Diaz-Lazaraga, the BIA changed the definition of a theft-type CIMT to include crimes that require, as an element, theft with the intent to take property, quote, either permanently or under circumstances where the owner's property rights are substantially eroded, end quote. Every circuit, to my knowledge, has deemed this new definition only potentially applicable to convictions obtained post Diaz-Lazaraga, but no court has actually decided whether the change to the definition of a CIMT was permissible or not, at least in my recollection. Mr. Velaz had post Diaz-Lizarraga petty larceny convictions, and as he was represented by Wilbur Hale on petition for review, I can only imagine that the argument was brought up. But I don't know, because the validity of matter of Diaz-Lizarraga wasn't discussed by the Second Circuit at all. The court just kind of indicated that it should obviously defer to the new CIMT definition put forth by the BIA in 2016, which now allows for theft-based crimes to qualify as CIMTs even where conviction can be obtained by a less-than-permanent taking. Something you'll have to deal with now, Second Circuit practitioners, and possibly everybody else. So, with the federal definition of a theft-based CIMT defined by Diaz-Lizarraga, the Second Circuit turned to the elements of the New York petty larceny statute to determine whether, as the categorical approach requires, those elements match the definition of a CIMT outlined in Diaz-Lizarraga. Mr. Velaz argued that it did not, because New York petty larceny allows for conviction where the defendant has either an intent to, quote, deprive another of property, end quote, or the intent to, quote, appropriate the same to himself or to a third person, end quote. Appropriation, in turn, defined by New York Penal Law Section 155.004b, applies where the defendant has, quote, the intent to dispose of the property for the benefit of oneself or a third person, end quote. And Mr. Velaz argued that that, quote, is a less culpable mental state than the Diaz-Lizarraga definition, because it could be as minimal as, quote, joyriding or stealing something with the intent of putting it back the next day. End quote. The Diaz-Lizarraga definition allows for CIMT findings where the criminal statute permits a less-than-permanent taking. But the bar is not that low. To the Second Circuit, the inquiry came down to the definition of the word dispose, as used by the New York appropriation definition. And after reviewing a bunch of New York case law, the Second Circuit remained unsure so the court certified the question to the New York Court of Appeals, which for reasons that have never made sense to me and annoy me to no end, is the highest court in New York, higher than the New York Supreme Court, which is not, as the title would suggest, supreme. Judge Sullivan, in dissent, would find that New York petty larceny is a CIMT. I'll see you all in a few months or years on the podcast when the New York Court of Appeals answers the question. One more interesting thing from the state next door. Very noteworthy. 
It appears based on the Second Circuit's analysis in this case that if this same question came up with Connecticut petty larceny, the crime would not meet the Diaz-Lizarraga definition, based on the Connecticut Supreme Court's 1995 decision in State v. Wheeler. Dicta in this decision, but strong and totally citable dicta. And that is Velaz v. Garland. Moving on, we have Tobias Chavez v. Garland, published by the Sixth Circuit on June 8, 2021. This case is about procedural due process and jurisdiction. Miss Tobias Chavez fled her abusive husband in Honduras for the United States with her child in 2014. She was placed in removal proceedings in Houston, but the Houston court made a clerical error, and she never received her hearing notice. She was ordered removed in absentia when she didn't appear, but upon her motion, proceedings were reopened. She filed an asylum application with her motion to reopen, even though she didn't technically need to because it was an in absentia motion to reopen based on a lack of notice. And the court then transferred her case to the immigration court in Memphis, apparently on Ms. Tobias Chavez's own motion. EOIR created a Louisville court in 2018, and apparently, because Ms. Tobias Chavez lived within that court's jurisdiction, the Memphis court transferred her case to the Louisville court, sua sponte. The Memphis court didn't issue an order or provide Ms. Tobias Chavez an opportunity to challenge the venue transfer. The court just kind of did it administratively, and presumably, then the Louisville court issued a hearing notice. For the immigration judge in Louisville, Ms. Tobias Chavez, through counsel, argued that the Memphis court had improperly changed venue, and so the Louisville court lacked jurisdiction. The Louisville IJ rejected the argument and denied asylum relief. The BIA affirmed, noting, in pertinent part, that Mr. Tobias Chavez lived 75 miles away from the Louisville court and 400 miles away from Memphis. The Sixth Circuit affirmed the BIA. First it held that an immigration court as in federal district court, venue is not jurisdictional, and indeed, unlike jurisdiction, it can be waived by a party. That venue isn't jurisdictional is also supported by the immigration regulations, which don't really connect the initiation of proceedings in jurisdiction with venue. True, the Sixth Circuit and even Oil agreed that the Memphis court's sua sponte venue change, at least in the manner conducted here, violated Mr. Tobias Chavez's procedural due process rights. That's in large part due to 8 CFR section 1003.20a, which permits a venue change only upon a motion by a party, not the court, and requires that the non-citizen be given notice and an opportunity to respond to the venue change motion. Plus, an EYR policy memo expressly prohibits IJs from transferring venue sua sponte. But, a procedural due process violation only potentially will result in termination of proceedings where the non-citizen suffers prejudice as a result. This, Ms. Tobias Chavez could not show, because again, she lived much closer to the Louisville court than to Memphis, and in fact, she requested a venue change to Louisville from Houston initially. The Louisville court just didn't exist at the time of her own request, so she ended up in Memphis initially. So I'm a bit unsure what all the ruckus was about here, but of course, I don't have the full story. 
A bit surprisingly, Ms. Tobias Chavez did not petition for review the denial of asylum, and so the case is over. And that is Tobias Chavez v. Garland. Our final case this week is Soto Soto v. Garland, published by the Ninth Circuit on June 11, 2021. This case is about deferral of removal under the Convention Against Torture and standards of review, and it's authored by Judge Mylon Smith, who was in dissent in a cat deferral case two weeks ago. Judge Wallace concurred and dissented in part. Ms. Soto Soto is an indigenous woman from Mexico who was, quote, brutally tortured by Mexican state police until she confessed to the kidnap and murder of a five-year-old, end quote. All charges were dismissed in Mexico, and she fled to the United States, apparently entering the U.S. undetected. But eventually, Mexico charged her again, issued another warrant for her arrest, and requested her return by filing an Interpol Red Notice with the United States. Although Mexico did not formally request extradition, the Red Notice, as always occurs, led ICE to initiate removal proceedings in 2017, where Ms. Soto Soto applied for asylum and related relief. The immigration judge found Ms. Soto Soto credible, but determined that the Mexican arrest warrant and Interpol international arrest request qualified as, quote, serious reasons to believe, end quote, that Ms. Soto Soto committed a serious non-political crime, meaning that she was ineligible for everything except cat deferral. And the IJ then granted cat deferral finding that the Mexican police had tortured Ms. Soto Soto in the past, that the Interpol request clearly indicated that Mexico would learn of and detain Ms. Soto Soto in the future, and that all relevant country condition evidence shows that indigenous women are treated really bad in Mexico. But the BIA reversed, finding that the IJ clearly erred in making its factual findings, and stating primarily that the new criminal charge in Mexico didn't rely on the same problems as the dismissed charge did and that despite her initial torture, Ms. Soto Soto was not tortured during her eight months in pretrial detention the first time around. On petition for review, Ms. Soto Soto, through counsel, argued that, quote, though the BIA's opinion says it reviews the IJ's findings under the clear error standard, the substance of the BIA opinion improperly engages in de novo review, end quote. And the Ninth Circuit agreed. Count one for standards of review. The BIA reviews IJ factual findings under the clearly erroneous standard, and for factual findings to be clearly erroneous, they must be, quote, illogical, implausible, or without support, end quote. But here, the BIA essentially overturned the IJ based on a finding that the Mexican judicial system took steps to correct past due process errors in Ms. Soto Soto's case, and that members of her family remained in Mexico unharmed. But that's not really the BIA saying that the IJ's reasoning lacked logic. It's a weighing of evidence differently from the IJ, i.e. impermissible de novo review. Not only that, but the IJ relied on a lot of things, including Ms. Soto Soto suffering past torture, which the BIA didn't address. Plus, the Ninth Circuit believes that in fact, it's the BIA that misread the record. And in any event, quote, even if the record supported the BIA's factual findings, that would not be enough for the BIA to overturn the IJ under the clear error standard of review, because this type of fact-finding, 
how the facts in the record affect the likelihood of future torture, is entitled to broad deference from the BIA, end quote. So the Ninth Circuit sent the case back. Congratulations, Hector A. Vega Reyes of the Public Defender's Office in San Francisco for petitioner. One more important thing before we end the episode. At the end of the day, and reiterating what he said two weeks ago in dissent in Dawson v. Garland, Judge Mylon Smith quotes Saichua Jaime's v. Barr to state that, quote, Past torture is ordinarily the principal factor on which we rely when an applicant who has been previously tortured seeks relief under the cat, end quote. So while, and unlike with past persecution, past torture does not lead to a presumption of torture in the future, it's getting pretty close in the Ninth Circuit. And that is Soto Soto v. Garland. So there you have it. You're all caught up with the past week's published immigration cases. I'm Kevin A. Gregg, a partner with the law firm Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, and this has been another episode of Immigration Review. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share it with a friend and rate and review us. Each review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, subscribe to Immigration Review wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what we do and want to become a patron of the show, please check out our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash immigration review, or click on the link in the show notes. And if you're interested in an official immigration review CLE certificate for five credit hours, email me at kgreg at kktplaw.com with your full name and the episode numbers for the 10 shows you've listened to. Also, feel free to email me with questions, comments, or anything at all. And follow the show on Instagram and Facebook, at Immigration Review. And send us a tweet, at ImReview. That's I-M-M Review. I'll be back next Monday for a brand new discussion. Until then, I'm Kevin A. Gregg, bringing you the Immigration Review.